to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our focus this morning will be on Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'll be reading 127 through 218. 127 through 218. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count one another's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us for using the gospel of your free grace to live recklessly and sinfully. And bless now the preaching of your word. So that under the understanding of that grace would rightly move us to exertion 
work in a manner that magnifies the gospel all the more. Not in any way that's self-reliant, self-dependent, but in a way that is completely of you to the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of these verses that they, verses 12 and 13, that they are perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. It was one of those perfect pictures which we tend to find so frequently in the writings of this apostle. He was very fond of stating the whole thing over and over again. He liked to give a summary of the Christian life, and here is one of the most pregnant statements which even he himself ever made. Now, I agree with the doctor on every point, but I want to elaborate and connect a bit. Paul was fond of making these kind of summaries of the Christian life. But what I'd want to add is, whenever he makes this one, he's repeating a very profound statement that he just made. The command that you have here, work out your own salvation, rhymes with, The command he gave earlier in verse 27 of chapter 1 to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ or live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. One way you can see how these commands are, how they rhyme, you begin to sense it. You don't really see it, but you begin to sense that that's the case, is whenever you note that Paul states both commands with reference to whether or not he's present or absent. So, work out your own salvation with fear. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, and he goes on, But the main way we see the similarity between these two commands, I believe, is with the word therefore. Verse 12. This command comes as a conclusion, as a consequence of something. But exactly what? There are two possibilities. The first, the short answer, the direct answer, and then the second is the scenic route. So the, the short, direct way as to, to how we come to this command to work out our salvation as a conclusion or a consequence, the short route is Paul has just spoken of our salvation in the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. So in light of that salvation, work it out. That's the short route. The longer one? Well... Paul has opened the body of this letter with a command. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel. Or live as heavenly citizens worthy of the charter of your salvation, which is the gospel. If they do so, they will hear, Paul will hear, that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So if they obey the first command, 
to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, the result will be that Paul will hear that they're obeying the second command. Chapter 2, verse 2, be of the same mind. Which he then states again, 2 and verse 5, have this mind. And then he goes on to illustrate that mind with the humility of Christ. But Paul, as soon as he mentions Christ, gets caught up and revels in Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And now this, therefore, brings us back to the main theme. Paul is resuming his main argument. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means I will hear you're also obeying the second command to be of the same mind. Being of the same mind means having this mind, which was, is yours in Christ Jesus. And now having unfolded some of that, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or, see the connection this way. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation. You see the equivalency of salvation and gospel. In one instance, you're told to live worthy of it. In the other instance, you're told to work, work it out. Many noting the poetic feel of verses 6 through 11 have speculated that this was an early hymn concerning Christ's humiliation and exaltation. I think that's a bit fanciful. I think the explanation is that Paul waxed poetic as he took up the subject matter. The the, the topic that he was dealing with brought that kind of language out in Paul. And so now following that hymnic statement, we have a reprise of the main theme that brought that hymnic statement about. The Christian life in summary, given in both of these verses. 1, 27 and 2, 12 and 13. As glorious as these two verses are though, many sola-affirming Protestants have troubles with what Paul says here. Work out your own, out of all persons too to say such a thing. The Apostle Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Working out the meaning of just two words should work out any difficulties that we have with working out our salvation. The first word, salvation. And our problem at this point is that we speak Christianese far more fluently than we speak biblical or strict theological language at this point. A biblical and theological language, you see, are not the problem, though so many make, make them out to be a problem. Now, it's true that they can be abused to puff up, to give the appearance of spirituality and wisdom. They can be abused to obscure rather than to clarify. But the problem is not with biblical language or theological language in that instance. It's with the person. No one complains when the football commentator speaks Football. We come from the world and we want the church to speak world. It's like the Brit wanting the football commentator to speak football in the European sense. Make sense of this football with soccer analogies. 
Yes, we need to define our terms. We need to help people along. We need to explain to them what this kind of language means. But I, I think that most of the complaints about biblical and theological language really are an expression that other persons are far more interested in other games than they are this one. But we are fluent in Christianese. Rather than speaking the foreign language of, this, of the Bible into the world, we bring a foreign language onto the Bible. And the sneaky thing about Christianese is that it gets just enough right that you can go significantly wrong and not have a clue that you've done so. Whenever Christians today hear salvation, they most often think narrowly, whereas the Scriptures often are speaking broadly. So, Christians think only of the beginning, many today only think of the beginning of the race. The beginning of their their Christian walk. They only think of the beginning as salvation. Or, to be generous, there are others that would think of the end also as salvation. When Christ returns and makes all things new. But really, what's foremost in their mind is just the beginning of the race. The Bible speaks of our salvation, though, in reference to the whole of the race. The beginning, the end, and all the sweat and exertion in between the whole of it is our salvation. The Bible speaks of the salvation of the saints in all three tenses. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Salvation is not simply something that has happened to you. It is happening to you, and it will happen to you. Salvation includes not just your regeneration, your justification, your adoption, which have happened in the past if you are one of the saints. They include your sanctification, which is happening right now, and your glorification, which is yet to be. More than that, your salvation stretches further back than your experience. It stretches from eternity to eternity. From election to to glorification. And so some have said, in reply to the question, when were you saved? 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. And then one trumps that and says, no, I was saved in eternity past when the Father chose me in the Son. So whenever Paul tells these saints, chapter 1, verse 1, these are saints in Christ Jesus, he tells them to work out their salvation He's clearly, in this instance, referring to the nowness of salvation, which we refer to as sanctification. He's assuming regeneration and justification and adoption as things that have occurred in the past. And on the basis of those, calling for them to work out their salvation in the present. Now, what is sanctification? Let's define that term, that biblical term. What do we mean by sanctification? It is what Paul spoke of in 1 and verse 25. Whenever he said that he wanted to come and see them for their progress in the faith. What is sanctification? It means your progress in the faith. You're growing up into Christ. You're being conformed to His image. Your discipleship. What is sanctification? If you want to know... You would do better 
just reading Jerry Bridges and the title of the titles of his books rather than all those shelves of Christian living in Mardell. There's more wisdom just in the titles of Jerry Bridges' books than all those shelves contain for the most part. So, Bridges' titles, The Pursuit of Holiness, The Practice of Godliness, The Discipline of Grace. Sanctification is the saints being sanctified. They're being made who they were declared to be in Christ. It's our growth in holiness and godliness and obedience and discipleship. But now, have I not just narrowed a term that I said was really broad? You say salvation is broad and now you're saying it refers to sanctification. No. I'm saying that the working out refers to your sanctification. The narrow part of you working out is sanctification and what you're working out is this broad thing of God's salvation. Now, there are times whenever salvation is clearly referred to throughout the Scriptures, and it is being narrow. But right here, whenever you're told to work out, that's the narrow part. And what you're working out is something very broad, God's salvation, the whole of it. The second word for us to work out is the word out. Paul does not tell you to work up your salvation. He does not tell you to work for your salvation. He doesn't even tell you to work in your salvation as if it's something that God started and then you've got to put it down deep. He tells you to work it out. And you see again, regeneration is assumed. A seed has been planted and it's growing. And what sanctification calls for you to do is now act as a good steward of that which God has begun. Water it Fertilize it. Cultivate it. Let it permeate the whole of your being. Now, we have an aversion, though, to salvation and works ever being mixed in the same concoction together. But we need to be more sophisticated chemists than this. While we need to abhor Galatian chemistry involving salvation and works, we need to learn to become Philippian chemist regarding salvation and works. In Galatians, Paul said, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. And notice with that, Two things. One, Paul has narrowed the field of salvation to a specific aspect, justification. And he's considering, in regards to justification, he's considering works as prior to and the cause of salvation. And in that regards, Paul says that doesn't mix. That's a volatile chemistry. Don't ever mix salvation and works that way. You don't ever begin with works and then pour the salvation in on top of that. In Philippians, though, we're not speaking of justification. We're speaking of sanctification. And we're not speaking of works as preceding them, but following them. Not as the cause of salvation, but as the effect of salvation. Here... The focus is on sanctification, Galatians, justification. 
Justification concerns God's declaration of righteousness. We're declared righteous on the basis of Christ. So justification, God's declaration of righteousness. Sanctification is our doing of righteousness. Though you may agree with all these distinctions, that's fine and well, yet you have a kind of instinct that you don't like the smell of this even still because you want to exult as Jonah did, that salvation is of Yahweh, all of it. And that is a blessed instinct that I don't want you to compromise. I don't want you to curb. I don't want you to have any kind of conviction that that impulse is negative. Feed it, never compromise it. What I want you to see is that what Paul is saying here in no way should stifle your exaltation that salvation is of the Lord in any way. Because the grounds upon which you are being called to work out your salvation is this. For it is God who works in you. The grounds of our working out Are that God is working in. All is of Him. Whenever you are passive. And passive seems an understatement to say when you're dead. And you are regenerated and made alive. And then whenever you as a man that is living. Obey. Walk in the truth. Work out your salvation. In all of that, all of it is of God. But, whereas you do nothing in your regeneration, you do do something in your sanctification. But what you're being told is, your doing is God's doing. We work out what He's working in. Not only that, we're working out what He's working towards. To borrow from Thomas Brooks, sanctification is glorification in the bud. And glorification is sanctification in bloom. One day, we will be Perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. And the result of you being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ is that you will do righteousness perfectly. The result of sanctification right now, it's something God is doing, but the result of it is that you do righteousness imperfectly towards that ultimate goal. John Murray writes, No text sets forth more succinctly and clearly the relation of God's working to our working. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. 
Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did His part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. Your working is His work. You don't work independently. You don't work self-reliantly. You work God-dependently and you work God-reliantly. Your works are works of faith. They're faith exercised. You know that if God did not work, all of your work would be futile. The obedience that's called for here is an obedience of faith. Work out your own salvation for it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. See what Paul has said, the depth to which this goes? What is it that God is working in us both to will and to do? He works in you not only your doing of His will, but the willing to do His will. When you will to do God's will, God has willed that willing. When you work the work God has commanded, God has worked that work. The scripture is replete with this kind of testimony. Hebrews 13, 20-21 Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now do you see? Your working out does not curb the explanation that salvation of the Lord is in any way. Rather, it results so that glory goes to Christ for His salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul worked. And then he says, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 As each has received a gift, use it. Whenever you're using the gift, you're using grace. As each has received a gift, use it. To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of His calling. that sound familiar? So put that on one side. God make you worthy of His calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Do you hear the totality, the absoluteness of that? That 
God may fulfill every resolve for good work. And every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you and Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you work out your salvation, it's only being worked out in such a way that all glory and honor and praise goes to Christ. Acknowledging that you're only working out what He has worked in. Exclaiming all along the way, not just at the beginning of the race, but all along the way, all of your life is one of God's salvation. And you say of it all, salvation is of the Lord. Now, at this point, I imagine there are some of you that you've thought to yourself, what if I don't have a will to do God's will? And there are two kinds of persons that can ask that question. And two very different answers should be given. What if I don't have a will to do God's will? If your conscience is troubled... If you say that, something like Paul says in Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If that's something of your experience, if your question is expressing something like this, I want to want His will. I want to desire obedience. If that's what you're expressing, listen to yourself because you've said this. Let me put it this. There's, what's the difference between desiring His will and desiring to desire His will? You just expressed a desire for His will. You've just expressed a will that wants God's will. But what you're also confessing is brokenness and sinfulness. What you're confessing is an aspect of sanctification that's longing for glorification. You've expressed repentance. You've expressed faith. You've demonstrated something of the work of God in your heart is what you've really said in that. So dear poor soul, remember this. The scriptures tell us that the Lord of our salvation will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering wick. Whenever He demands that you work out your own salvation, there isn't an or else kind of tone to it. There's an I'm with you tone to it. So instead of looking to yourself and your weak willing, look to your Lord and His strong willing. Your confidence in yourself is so small, and it should be, but your confidence in God should not be the less for it. He is greater than you are small. He's stronger than you are weak. 
Work not in your own power, work in His. Work not assured of your work, work assured of His work in you. Not work out your own salvation, for it is you who work. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works. Take comfort from what Paul says in Romans 7. I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Take comfort from that. But then, take courage from what he says in Colossians 1. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works in me. Whenever you find that your heart is not fully in obedience, what do you do then? Obey repentantly. Obey prayerfully. Pray something like this. God, I want to obey you wholeheartedly. And so use this broken, half-hearted act of mortification to bring life and wholeness. I'm willing to obey you, but I'm willing it with brokenness. And use this Broken obedience, Father, to bring about whole obedience unto you. Don't wait until your willing is completely willing. Because it's so often that act of repentant obedience that God uses to bring about wholeness in life. But there's another kind of soul. And it's not always the one you would think of. It's not always the overtly wicked, proud, calloused, hard-hearted, rebellious soul that needs to hear this. It can be the one whose life is full of good works. They don't really will them, though, in a good way. They have some other kind of objective in view. They don't will them... Freely, as a child, confident and assured of their father's love, they will them as a slave, trying to get what they want out of their master. If you find no desire to obey for the reasons Paul has laid out in our text, back to one twenty-seven, if you find no desire to will this because You want to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. No desire to do this because of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. If you don't have any desire to do it in reference to Christ, the explanation, I believe, is this simple. You cannot work out willing and doing God's will because He is not working in. If you... Do not know Christ. Do not attempt to obey this command. You cannot work a salvation. You cannot work out a salvation that is not there. This command is given for the saints to sanctify themselves. Sinners, don't try to sanctify yourself. Don't take up doing 
Till to Jesus' work you cling, by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. Be you a pagan or be you a Pharisee, don't do till to Jesus' work you cling. You heard that, didn't you? Till to Jesus' work you cling. By simple faith. But once to Jesus' work you cling. Work. Once you've clung to Jesus, doing is no longer death. Doing is the doing of life. The life He's put in you. If you have bowed before Christ, stand. If you cling to the pure Christ as your righteousness, go get your hands dirty. If you've looked to Jesus, then look to the needs of others. And if your faith is still weak, look at why the Father does this work in you. This God who works in you both to will and to work. Why does He do this? For His good pleasure. He doesn't do this reluctantly. Do you see the impetus for us to willfully work knowing that the Father willfully works? The Father does this just as He does all His work. When our God works, He is all in. He never has His hands tied. He's never bound contractually. He never does things just to appease others on the face of things. Whatever our God does, He does with all His heart. He's all in. In What a cure to our sinful reluctance to look at the holy unreluctance of our God for our holiness. Our God will work until the seventh day of new creation has been brought about. And He will look at it all and say, very good. And until that day, He's doing His labor with joy. He'll do so because it's His good pleasure. The psalmist tells us our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God not only does, so God hears everything that pleases Him. He not only does that, we're told this. Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He does all that He pleases, and whatever pleases Him, He does it. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. Saints, work out, knowing that not only is God working in, but that He's working in for His good pleasure. It's His delight and His joy to do so. And then now understanding something of the what we are to do, work out our own salvation, understanding something of the why we are to do that, because it's God who works in us, let's look at the manner, the how we are to do this. And there are two ways that Paul gives First, they're to work out their salvation as they always have. Meaning they're to carry on 
whether Paul is absent or present, verse 12. Obey as you've always obeyed, irregardless of any man, even be that man the Apostle Paul. They're not simply to start obeying because dad is coming home. And I think this helps you to understand the second manner in which Paul tells you to carry out this command. We can miss the connection because they're separated by the command itself. Whether I'm there or not, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation whether or not I'm there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You sense the connection? He's telling you, you don't work out your salvation with reference to man. You work it out with reference to God. I think Paul's instructions to the slaves in Ephesians 6 are really illuminating in this way. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with Fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. We're to work out our own salvation, not with reference to man, but with reference to God. We're to live karam deo, before the face of God, not before the face of men. This is not a craven fear. This is a fear of awe and reverence. And having teased out verse 13 already, I can help you see why, help you see why it is that you would work it out with fear and reverence. Why do you work out your salvation with fear and reverence? Because God is working in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. How holy a thing is the pursuit of holiness. You are a temple renovation project. God Himself is doing the renovation. And you do the renovation. God's making you a temple means you be a temple, a place of holiness, a place of worship where God is revered. In regards to sexual immorality, Paul asks the Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We could put it this way. The Philippians are to work, not because someone else is present and they're working. The call is for them to work Because God is present. And God is working. And if God is working, how can we goof off? That's why we do so with fear and trembling. With reverence. 
John Piper captures the sense of this well. Tremble at this breathtaking thought. God Almighty is in you. God is the one in you willing. God is the one in you working. My continuous, strenuous, my continuous, sustained, strenuous work, effort, he says. My continuous, sustained, strenuous effort is not only being carried out in the very presence of all holy God, but is the very continuous, sustained, strenuous effort of God Himself. Let me modify Piper a bit at this point, because I think that could be stated much better. I have contentions with the word strenuous in reference to God Almighty. It doesn't equate to me. You want to talk about strenuous, you talk about Christ and the cross. I'm with you there. You talk about the Christ and His humility. I'm with you there, but not God Almighty. Or Christ in His exaltation. So let me give it another go. My continuous, sustained, strenuous work is not only being carried out in the very presence of all holy God, but is the very continuous, sustained, glorious work of God Himself. He continues, I am not waiting for a miracle I am acting a miracle. My action is God's action in fighting my sin. My willing is God's willing. Sanctification is acting the miracle of your salvation. Or as Jerry Bridges puts it, it is an act of dependent responsibility. You must work out. Hebrews, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You must work out, but God must work in. You are responsible and you are dependent. God is decisive and God is sovereign in this. The work of the Christian life The obedience of God's children, the faith of the faithful, the walk of the Christian pilgrim, the sanctification of the saints is neither, I hope you see by this, a passive Keswick theology of let go and let God. Nor is it a Pelagian attempt to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So Keswick theology, also known as higher life theology, says that you just need to wait and believe. And then there will be some kind of experiential thing that happens. And then you'll just do God's will. And it leads towards perfectionism. A lot of higher life and Keswick theologians are perfectionists. If you're wanting to identify one that's a bit sneaky, that can get under the radar, Oswald Chambers, Keswick theologian, higher life theology. Pelagian theology says, just do. You have everything you need, just do it. Do God's will. Charles Finney, representative there. Both of these get only something right, and then therefore everything very wrong in regards to sanctification. J.I. Packer sweeps both of these away masterfully. Of Keswick theology, he says, 
the Christian's motto should not be, let go and let God, but trust God and get going. And of Pelagianism, he writes, Pelagianism is the natural heresy of zealous Christians who are not interested in theology. Let me read that again. Pelagianism is the natural heresy of zealous Christians who are not interested in theology. So they're zealous, but they're zealous. So what's, what is there for them to do? But to do. They just do. And so, they don't bother with seeing the undergirding motive of action that Paul has laid forth here. They just work out. But they don't work out because of faith and doctrine and truth. God is working in them both to will and to do for His good pleasure. In these verses, saints, the sanctification of our souls is laid out in the most crisp and clear manner possible. It cannot be improved on. Don't try to improve on it with these kind of trite phrases or actions. Work out your own salvation because God is working in you. Or if you wish, you could put it this way. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because living worthy of the gospel of Christ, this is what I believe Paul's brought out now up to this point. Living worthy of the gospel of Christ not only means, one, living a life befitting the gospel, and two, living a life shaped by the gospel, have this mind in you, which was, is yours in Christ Jesus and His humility. So living a, life befitting the gospel, living a life worthy of the gospel means not only a life that befits the gospel, corresponds to it, a life shaped by the gospel, it means a life that's empowered by the gospel. Live a gospel-empowered, gospel-shaped gospel-glorifying life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And whenever you have finished traversing this life, this race that God began you on sovereignly when you were dead, and along each step of the race and at the finish line when you eternally enjoy the victory that you have in Christ from every aspect all along the way exclaim salvation is of the Lord let's pray holy father Thank you for your great salvation that is ours in Christ, in Christ alone. You planned it, the Son accomplished it, the Spirit is working in it, working that salvation in us right now. Father, may we be holy. May we be what we are in Christ. May we live gospel-empowered lives, gospel-shaped lives, gospel-glorifying lives.
In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.